when we talk about authority, order, and governance, um, I want to first acknowledge that uh, oftentimes when we talk about these things, there's deep feelings and emotions. <laughs> I think it's silly to not acknowledge that because um, we are human beings and um, we are often sinful human beings. And we, well not often, let's say we, we are sinful human beings who God is redeeming. Um, and because of that, uh, the church does hurt people. <laughs> Right? So who here has been hurt by the church? Don't be shy. Most of us have been. Unless you're a new Christian, you've probably been hurt by the church in some form or another. One of the things that the bishop talked to us about at our retreat is, is just acknowledging that and saying, you know, those hurts we carry with us, and if we're not careful, we can let them shape our response to authority. And that itself is like a, a teaching and a sermon series, right? We all react out of our hurt sometimes, out of our unhealedness sometimes. And if we're not careful, we let that poison our relationships. So just kind of bring that to mind. Uh, bring that to mind as, as we go over this kind of stuff. If you start feeling like a gut, a pit in your gut, you know, or a or your hackles go up over something we talk about, it's usually an, an indication that, that there's hurt there, right? Um, so there's a spiritual component to this, is what I'm trying to say, a spiritual and emotional component to it as well. A lot of times, we as Americans segment off, like, there's the gospel, and then there's, like, church polity and all that stuff. And the fact is that they're interwoven, and, and they affect one another. So, right from the beginning... God makes man and woman in his image to hold dominion over the world. Authority is a part of who we are as human beings in God, under God's authority, right? So Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Have dominion. Of course, mankind sinned. We all know the story. We fell from paradise and everything fell with us. Everything under our regency, everything under our delegated care fell with us. And so when Psalm 8 speaks about this, it starts off with, O Lord our God, our, O Lord our governor, how excellent is your name. You have made man to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things in subjection under his feet. As I cited today, even the pagan philosopher Aristotle recognizes this when he talks about the fact that we have dominion, and that we're political animals. So it should go without saying that there have been abuses to power, there will be abuses to power, and there will be hurt in the church as well as outside of it. Um, the ingenious man behind the American Constitution, a well-schooled Anglican, by the way, James Madison, when he wrote Federalist number 51, he was acknowledging this. This was the worldview that shaped him. And when he writes, you probably know this famous phrase, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. He continues, if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. 
we must first enable the government to control the governed, and the next place, oblige it to control left unrestrained would become tyrants. As a safeguard against this, Saul was crowned by Samuel under a basic constitution. We've talked about this in my 930 class. The first constitutional monarchy is found in the Bible. Restrictions and limited government are found in the Bible in 1 Samuel. It's one verse, but it's easy to miss. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord, 1 Samuel 10.25. So sometimes people will ask me, why does the Anglican Church have so many rules and procedures? Why do we have so many policies? And the answer is that because without defined rules of governance, the church quickly becomes a mess because of our sinfulness, and it hurts people. Now, the church hurts people even with those limiting factors, but without it, it becomes chaos. If you have any doubt of that, all you have to do is take a cursory look at history. I would point you to the unlimited authority of the medieval popes, as an example, or more recently, the Fall of Mars Hill broadcast podcast that talks about this in the evangelical church. These are chroniclings of poor order and the fallout that comes from it. The Anglican Diocese of the Upper Midwest, more closely to home, is a chronicling of poor order and a church that outgrew its structure and therefore didn't have mechanisms to guard, safeguard its people. We're dealing with that in our denomination right now. The bottom line is, as the 39 articles say, original sin is an infection of nature that doth remain, yea, even in them that are regenerated. The goal of the church, however, in this way, is to protect and feed the Lord's flock. And so Paul has that in mind when he says in 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. Now he's talking about worship, but beyond worship, are all those things that enable worship and ministry. I've thought to myself a few times, boy, wouldn't it be nice when someone was baptized, if they were baptized and confirmed, you know, and they came up from the water, or the bishop was done laying his hands on them, if all trace of sin were gone? Wouldn't that be nice? Now we know that when Jesus looks at that person, he sees God's imputed righteousness through Jesus Christ, and yet we, we live out still in this mortal flesh our sinful ways. The infection doth remain, as the articles say. All you have to do to see evidence of this is to look at the apostles themselves, right? Whether it's while Jesus is still alive and Jesus is correcting the, uh, quote, sons of thunder, 
James and John who want to vaporize the city in Samaria in Luke chapter 9 because of how it responds to the gospel. Or St. Paul opposing St. Peter to his face at Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. We see that even the apostles struggled with this. And the apostles were granted authority in John 20, 21 to be the proclaimers and guardians of the church. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So, I can't remember whether we went over this passage this year or not, but this is right after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the apostles in John chapter 20, and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And again, at the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now a lot of people will look at those passages and completely omit the fact that they're directed at the apostles. It's true that every Christian takes things from those passages also. But these are specifically given to the apostles first. It's an authority, a delegation of authority from our Lord himself in three different areas which you can parse out. Number one, proclamation and teaching. Number two, discipleship and the attending word discipline, right? It's the same root. And number three, sacrament. So God gives these to them, the 11 that is. Notice, this is where we have a distinction from Rome. He doesn't give these, this authority to St. Peter alone. You see that? He gives it to the 11 at this point, and the 12, maybe even 13, if you add St. Paul. And that's manifested in Acts. Matthias is chosen to replace Judas as an apostle, and St. Paul's been divinely commissioned by God, and the apostles recognize that. So the apostles don't always agree, do they? Read the book of Acts. They don't always agree. It's not always happy sailing. When they come together in Acts chapter 15, they're dealing with this Jewish-Gentile divide. And the what do they do? Do they turn to St. Peter and say, give your papal bull, give your edict on this? No. They come together in council, and they seek the Lord in council. And St. James, the bishop of Jerusalem, issues the edict. So let's talk a little bit about what spiritual authority is. There's a lot that can be said about spiritual authority, but the episcopate and the diaconate, which is fancy for the bishops and the deacons, are firmly established in the biblical and apostolic era as positions of authority in the church. They're ordained I would argue. And the presbyterate, which is the fancy Greek word for priest, evolves shortly thereafter. We're going to talk about that too. The apostles' disciple successors as their bishops. But it's pretty clear 
from the death of St. John onward that the bishops are not equal to apostles. So sometimes you'll hear that teaching, that bishops are equal to apostles. That's not true. We don't believe that. Bishops cannot write scripture. Bishops cannot change scripture. Bishops are, for example, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, to follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me, St. Paul writes young Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, and that word's key, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see, this is the distinction between apostles and bishops. Apostles, of course, are guarding, but they're also writing scripture. Bishops are to guard the teachings and the writings. We see this also in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where St. Paul speaks to the elders, that is the presbyters or the priests in Ephesus, through Miletus, saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Greek there for overseers is episkopos. So you could also read that bishops to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So this is a very serious entrusting of authority in the apostles and then through them in the bishops. There's traditionally this authority is broken into several areas. So teaching, teaching. The writings of the, 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 writings of the apostles were circulating in the first century, but there was as of yet no New Testament the way that we know it, right? There were these letters going around which eventually became the 27 books of the New Testament. And that became a recognized authority. And we can talk all about that process. It's, it's really interesting, but, you know, again, we've got to focus in here. So, there's a lot to be said about that. But suffice it to say, number one, it's uni universally recognized the bishops are the guardians of the teachings of Christ. There's no question about that in the first century. If you go and you read, for example, Ignatius of Antioch, or the Didache, or the Shepherd of Hermas, or those early writings, the bishops are entrusted with this, and everybody agrees to that. Number two, the New Testaments were viewed as the prophetic word of God, and the list was almost settled by the end of the second century. So... By and large, the list of New Testament books was, was almost completely settled by the end of the second century. Again, there's some interesting discussions about that um, and why. The supreme authority, however, and this is the second main point, which is why we're a Reformation people, the supreme authority, however, is Scripture proclaimed. Scripture proclaimed, even before there was a Bible, in the modern sense of the word. Scripture was always considered that supreme authority. So, why is that important? Well, it means that Scripture is the authority of God, Jesus, revealing himself. 
to us. The church did not create Scripture. Sometimes you'll hear people say this. Well, the church created Scripture. The church can change Scripture. No. Nobody believed that. Nobody believed that. That's a modern, weird thing. Secondly, if a council or bishop contradicts Scripture, he or it is wrong. This is news to a lot of people, right? That there are councils that have erred. In fact, if you have your prayer book with you, I could point you, and I won't read it out, but article chapter, or article, in the Articles of Religion, which is one of our formularies, talks about this, that councils do in fact err and are only binding upon that which is anchored in Scripture. The creeds are the closest thing to Scripture. They're above all other things, Right? The creeds, however, are authoritative. So we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that thing which is known as the Athanasian Creed. They're authoritative because they are built upon Scripture and expound upon it. Right? Scripture is the bedrock, and the creeds are the primary way that Scripture is interpreted, along with the councils. Do you see where this is going? Do you see how there's already a division in authority? Like, there is number one, Scripture, and number two, those who are interpreting how Scripture is done, what we would call hermeneutics, properly speaking. Right? So it's the bishops and the bishops in council's job to discern the will of God in relation to the application of Scripture. And they also have the authority to disciple, which includes to discipline and regulate the sacraments. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 we read, again, St. Paul writing, I charge you, he's telling a young bishop, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the ju- who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word Be ready in season and out of season to do what? Give advice. Give his thoughts, which are equal to everybody else's thoughts. No, we continue to read. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching how he's to do it. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Uh, if that's already going on in the early church, you know, we're some 2,000 years from this point, right? Do you think that's changed? I don't. So teaching, interpreting the Word of God. Uh, Incidentally, if you look at the ordination services for the bishop and for the priest, you'll see these things in the vows and in the explanations in the actual ordination service. Some of you maybe are putting together links to the dedication service too, where I was uh, instituted as rector here. These things were mentioned, right? That the bishop gives me a letter saying, care for my flock, right? This, you, you are my flock, but in another way, you're the bishop's flock first. And of course, before him, you're Jesus Christ's flock, 
So there is this chain of authority coming down. Discipline and sacrament. Discipline and sacrament are joined together because, as we know from Corinthians, unity and sacrament, discipline and, and sacrament, are what unite, right? Think about St. Paul's discourse on the Lord's Supper and we're receiving worthily, right? It's not just an internal thing. It's being at peace with your brother. So part of spiritual authority is licensing, commissioning, ordaining. An ordination or the laying on of hands and anointing is that vehicle through which authority is passed down in good order from one bishop to another and then subsequently to priests and deacons. It assumes an intense discipling and accountability. And that's really important to understand. This isn't like some magical ceremony, right, where the bishop lays his hands on my head and anoints my hands and because of that, you know, now I can do whatever I want to do, right? This is saying that the bishop is saying, you've been well-trained, you've been educated in these things. I myself am vouching for you and entrusting my flock to you, okay? That, that, that's what's going on there. It assumes that. Again, the church gets into a, in trouble when someone makes the assumption of that and doesn't actually disciple, Right? That's why we're very careful with who we put in authority. We, we have to be very careful with who we give the collar to, right? Because this is a great duty, and you can, do, you can wreak havoc if you do it poorly. But there's no question, again, that this is coming from the bishops. So St. Ignatius of Antioch, who, along with St. Polycarp, sat at the actual feet of St. John, the Apostle, writes this, he says, let no one do anything relating to the church except independence on the bishop. Let only that Eucharist be regarded as legitimate that is celebrated under the presidency of the bishop or someone the bishop appoints. Wherever the bishop is, there let the community be. Just as wherever Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Only independence on the bishop is it permitted for anyone to baptize or celebrate the agape. Whatever he approves is also pleasing to God. And that's his epistle to the uh, Smyrnians. Um, not scripture, but again, this is something that's written within the first 100 years of Christ's death. For Jesus Christ, he also writes, our inseparable life is the will of the Father, even as the bishops who have been appointed throughout the world are by the will of Jesus Christ. That's pretty strong language. So a local presbyter or priest in our modern English is instituted by the bishop as a vicar or a rector as his spiritual representative. The local priest is not on his own authority, but exists in a capacity to care for the bishop's flock. And again, that's in the service on page 516 in the prayer book. So all of this is borne out in what we call canon law. So do you know the church has its own law, just as the state has its own law and the federal government has its own law? I have given you a copy of not all of canon law, but some of canon law here. 
because if I gave it all to you, well, I'd have to buy a lot of paper. <laughs> yes, Bernie? <laughs> yeah, I'd be about that thick, too. And, and, and canon law is a lot like, uh, it has this, and, and I've got some lawyers in the room, so correct me if I'm wrong on this, Jesse. Um, but it's a lot like common law, okay, in that parts of it are written and parts of it are unwritten, but are passed down from generation to generation. So there's assumptions made in our canon law from previous years of canon law that aren't written down, okay? It's more like the British system than the American system. There's this, these unwritten parts to it. But the important parts are written down, <laughs> right? There's just some assumptions made. So under that canon law, and I invite you to open up in the ACNA ones if you want to follow along, and then I'm going to stop for some commentary and questions. <clears throat> that spiritual authority comes to the rector or the vicar to spiritually lead the congregation. So this is, I'm sorry, let me, let me also kind of tell you how to read canon law. So if you look at the, um, if you look, for example, oh good, there is page numbers on here, that's helpful. So Title I, Canon 6, Section 5. So first there's the Constitution, right? Then we get into the canons. And the first one I'm citing here is Title 1, Canon 6, Section 5. So if you look at page 7, after the Constitution there, you'll see at the top there's Title 1. Do you see that? So when you see references to canon law, the title is the Roman numeral, okay? And then the canon is the Arabic numeral, and the section is the point whatever Arabic numeral, right? So if you look at the top of page 7, you see title 1, you look over canon 6, and then you look down to section 5. Do you see that? Is this making sense? I know this is very familiar to some people, but it's like brand new to some people. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, it's the second page seven. Yeah, this is the problem when you do these snippets, right? <laughs> the second page seven. So it, you should be seeing in bold, like after the first paragraph, Canon 6 of, the congrega of Congregation. We're not going to go through all of them like this, but I just want to point this out to you so that you can mark what I'm saying. So do you see section 5? It talks about governing boards, right? And it says, just again, I'm not going to do this for all of them, but it says, there shall be a governing board of each congregation known as the vestry, which is chosen and serves according to applicable laws, diocesan canons, and the congregational bylaws. The presbyter in charge of the congregation shall always be a member of the governing board and its presiding officer, except as provided by diocesan canon. The governing board is responsible for the temporalities of the congregation, except where otherwise provided by canon. Supports the, spiritual, supports the clergy in the spiritual leadership of the congregation. So, again, 
here's a division of authority that's going on, right? Now we're talking not this way, but this way. There's division of authority between spiritual leadership and temporal leadership, okay? If you look in the back of your packet, I've uh, had Lauren put together a little, I don't know what you call this, a flowchart, maybe? A map? Yours is probably black and white, but it should be the very last page in that packet. Not the canon law packet, the other packet. Yep, that one. Do you see? This is, again, an oversimplification, but there's temporal and spiritual authority. And notice, in the governance of the church, it's split between the rector and the vestry, which includes the rector. So what does that immediately say to you? Maybe, maybe our people that are poli-sci, you know, or have been involved in government. What does that say to you? I'm looking at you, Mayor. <laughs> Former Mayor. <laughs> Sorry, I'm putting him on the spot. <laughs> that say anything to you right off, right offhand? Yes, yes. So, so, there, so it says that, that like in this area, in the spiritual sector, if you will, the rector has almost complete authority under the, under the bishop. However, in the temporal sector, the rector is only a piece of the board. He's the chair of the board, right? So the vestry itself has authority in the temporal but he's a part of it. Do you see the difference? So when, he's, when the rector is in vestry, it's kind of like, uh, again, it makes sense, it's coming from the British system, right? So it's kind of like the, the, the king in parliament or the queen in parliament, right? Or I, I, think, I think even city governments sometimes function this way where the mayor sits in the council, maybe chairs the council, right? Um, which is different. You know, it's a different position than when he's acting as mayor or when the king or queen is acting as monarch, right? So, so it is with rectors and vestry. Um, where does this come from? Well, it comes down to us <laughs> by tradition, by canon law. So, for example, the rector has the authority when he's wearing his rector hat here to lead spiritually the congregation, to engage and dismiss employees, to celebrate the Lord's Day with the divine liturgy, to proclaim and preach the word of God, to administer the sacraments, to instruct those in his cure, in doctrine, sacrament, and discipline of Christ, to teach the Holy Scriptures, the Book of Common Prayer and the Catechism, to set the music to solemnize marriage, to preside at annual and vestry meetings. All those things are outlined in this canon. Right? And if you really want, if you want my cliff notes on that, I can give them to you. Some practical applications from this. The rector sets or approves all teaching programs, sermons, sermon series, Bible studies, children's programs, classes, anything that teaches the faith is his purview. The rector forms, appoints, and may disband, with the consent of vestry in some situations, all committees 
and is a member ex officio of all committees and ministries. The rector appoints disciples, commissions lay orders, with the exception of lay catechist and lay reader, and the rector is the head of staff, both lay and clergy. So, the laity play a really important role in all this, right? The laity have always been the most important part of the church. But, and while they don't get noticed, the lion's share of work ends up falling on the laity, right? The rector is not supposed to be the professional evangelist or the professional prayer or the professional whatever, right? He's, his job is to enable the laity to do their work. Ephesians 4 talks about this, to train up the laity to know and love Jesus and function well. So the laity are constantly interacting with those inside and outside the church, but mostly outside, whereas the rector and the clergy are usually dealing with those inside of the church, with the exception of the deacon. Deacons are supposed to go outside the church. We need each other, is the point here. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and they preach and baptize. But 5,000 God-fearers are baptized and take the gospel back to their homes, right? We're going to celebrate that in Pentecost in a couple weeks. In Acts 11, we're told of the men, Cyprus and Cyrene, who because of persecution begin to speak to the Greeks in Antioch. It's out of there, lay preaching, that comes the first, uh, comes one of the first churches, churches in the Gentiles, and the name Christian actually comes out of that interaction. Uh, Acts 11:21 says, "The Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord." So the apostles or the clergy in Jerusalem heard and sent Barnabas because they needed a leader. Do you see right there in the nascent church we have this partnership going on between the laity and the clergy. In Acts 16, Lydia, a godly woman, along with her household, is the first Christian in Europe. And very uh, immediately after that, a jailer is baptized with his whole household. And I could go on and on and on. We tend to forget these stories in the book of Acts. That's why it's really important to read the book of Acts, right? We, we tend to see, not see the laity as important because they're not necessarily the ones up in the robes, in the pulpit. But without the laity, the church doesn't move forward. You can't have a church of clergy. So the laity enter into covenant with one another and with the clergy in baptism and confirmation to do all, quote, in your power to support those who are baptized and confirmed in their life in Christ. You say that at every baptism and every confirmation. You say that vow. Hopefully you say heartily, we will, when the, when the officiant asks that. What that is, is you binding yourself. You're binding yourself to your brother, your sister in Christ. It's a very powerful vow. It's a, it's a vow much more powerful than any marital vow. Think about that for a minute. So let me stop there. That's the spiritual authority side of things. Now, like I said, I'm not covering everything. This is broad strokes. But do you have any questions that I can try to answer? 
from the spiritual authority side of things. Yes, Holly. I will try. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. Yes. So I didn't include it in your packet because it's, it's lengthy. Uh, largely, canon law focuses more on the clergy because it's generally dealing with disciplining and keeping the clergy uh, in the right direction. Um, so all of Title III in the ACNA canons deals with ecclesiastical discipline. Okay, and ecclesiastical discipline takes several forms. So there are things that your bishop, like the bishop can call me up and give me a godly admonishment, for example, basically telling me that um, I did something wrong and ordering me to do something else, right? Um, if I've broken canon law or if I break my oath of obedience to him, which I have to take every year, uh, to him and his successors. I can be brought up on charges in ecclesiastical court, which the church has its own courts as well as having its own laws at the diocesan level and at the um, provincial level. Um, generally, bishops and archbishops will try to deal pastorally before they bring out those big guns because it's always better, you know, as Scripture tells us, to, to gently... <laughs> rebuke and, and, and maintain a friend <laughs> instead of making an enemy, right? But sometimes it gets to be that severe case. So in our diocese, we had a bishop who was wrong both morally and canonically. And it came before the archbishop, and the bishop removed him and referred it to the College of Bishops for trial. And the College of Bishops came up with their answer and basically told our previous bishop, if you don't submit to this ruling, um, these will be the consequences. And over the course of a quarter, he did not. And so he was defrocked. He was stripped entirely. He was no longer even a deacon. Um, and so there's levels, the levels of discipline for clergy are inhibition, which is basically they take away your license. You can't preach or celebrate. Uh, then there's what's known as commonly as defrocking. Um, the technical term for that is, uh, I can't remember. It's so commonly known as defrocking. And then, uh, which is basically saying, okay, you're no longer a bishop. And they can do that at each level. And then there's, uh, you know, ultimately excommunication. Where they can say, you're no longer welcome in the community. Now, um, discipline also goes on for laity, although it's, it's less. So, you know, for example, if I, know, if I knew one of our parishioners was in notorious sin and unrepentant, I would deny him or her communion until they come to uh, confession. And again, that's kind of the nuclear option, <laughs> to use modern parlance. Like, you don't want to do that unless, like, you've exhausted all other options. 
but usually those kinds of disciplines are done when you've approached the person in private, when you've gone to the person with other, you know, other uh, clergy or vestry people and said, hey, look, this is a real problem. Um, when you've talked to the bishop about it, <laughs> you know, maybe he calls the person. But even then, the, the authority of a priest or rector is limited. Like, he can only do that and then kick it upstairs to the bishop, and the bishop has to make the ultimate um, decision on that. So, uh, yeah, laity can be brought before ecclesiastical court if they're uh, in a position of authority. So, you know, if you're on vestry and you commit something immoral and uncanonical, you can be brought before court. It usually doesn't get that high. It usually, you know, diffuses before that. Um, but it, it has happened. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? There's two reasons. The first is to protect the flock, right? If you have a loose cannon, they can hurt the congregation. They can hurt the diocese. If it's a bishop, they can really hurt a bunch of people, right? If um, the second reason is to help save that person's soul. I mean, if that person is acting in such a way that is not only bad for the community, but bad for themselves. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Right? Turn that person over to Satan as an unbeliever with the goal of them repenting. So, you know, these are things that happen to really get your attention. To really get your attention. Uh, in modern politics, this has gone on recently, this week, Nancy Pelosi was excommunicated by her bishop because of her positions on abortion. That's excommunication. <laughs> yeah. Now, excommunication is not permanent. It's a discipline so that you repent and return. Right? So it's really interesting. Technically... Ex, with excommunication, you excommunicate yourself. So when you take a position that's against the church, that's anathema, you actually excommunicate yourself, and the person in authority is just recognizing it. Now, you can come back at any minute, any point. You come back and repent and say, I was wrong, and excommunication is lifted. Yeah. It's, 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 and this is, if you actually read the Archbishop's statement of San Francisco, in that case, he draws this out. He says, look, this, this seems to be weaponizing the Eucharist. That's been the criticism. But it's for the protection of the flock and for the protection of her soul because she is in mortal danger by advocating this. That's church discipline. That's church discipline. Now, we can always, you know, talk about whether that church discipline's done well or not done well. There's always areas for that. Bishops fail. Priests fail. Right? You know the story of John Wesley in Savannah, Christ Church Savannah. He excommunicated a guy because um, he was dating the woman that Wesley was involved with. <laughs> and that didn't go over so well. The Bishop of London got involved. Anyway, <laughs> you know, this is why it's very important to understand the duties 
and the responsibilities of these positions, right? Because they are powerful and can help or hurt. They can help or hurt, right? Yes? Right, so you're saying that the all Right. 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 So this is this is the whole I mean this is the whole argument of the Reformation, right? I mean Martin Luther reads Romans and Galatians, right? And he says this is being misapplied. The whole the church has missed missed the whole purpose of the gospel here and lost it, right? Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but Martin Luther's first step was not to like nail the theses on the door and be done, right? What did he do? He went up the chain of command. He made objection. He went to his bishop. Now he was, in that case, um, you know, this is the irregular case, right? He was silenced, right? And, and no one would listen to him. And so he had to take things public, right? But he tried to follow the Matthew 18 guidance first, right? Um, now, how would that work? Are you asking how would that work like in our current situation? Like, after confronting the person directly. So, for example, let's say that uh, I got into the pulpit and preached that, um, I don't know, Jesus wasn't fully man, right? It's nothing like explicitly in Scripture about that, although there's a lot in Scripture about it, right? There's nothing that says that, right? I mean, you could probably make arguments, but I mean, we do make arguments. So this is the difference, right? Because... The, but you're looking for the interpretation. You're looking for the creedal interpretation. So maybe that's a bad example. But let's just use it as an example anyway. So um, what you would do is come and confront me. You might go to Father Joshua next and say, this is a problem. This, I believe this to be doctrinally incorrect. What do you think? And Father Joshua would think and pray about it, I'm sure. And then the two of you could come to me. But then if I will not repent of that er erroneous position, you're to go to the bishop. You as a layperson have access to the bishop because he's your shepherd, right? I'm his, I'm his minion. <laughs> I'm his, I'm his sheepdog, but he's your shepherd, right? So <laughs> Father Gene Smircina used to say that. He said, that's why we wear the dog collar because we're, we're dogs. We're not, we're not actually the shepherd. Um, we're sheepdogs. It's a great image with lots of accompanying things. Um, but, but you could go directly to the bishop. Again, after following that, go and confront the person in private. Take someone with you and confront the person in private and then go to the bishop. Right? Yeah.
Yes. That's right. Yes. I would hope. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's lots. So there's lots of different. There's lots of. Just a second. I'll come back. There's lots of different like iterations of this, right? Usually it's not like that overt. Usually it's like someone misspoke or someone misheard something or someone wasn't very clear in what he was saying when he was preaching, right? And you're like, you know, 90% of the time you come, you know, people will come to me with with this kind of situation and I'll say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. And sometimes if it, if it, Deacon Mark has confronted me before on this, and sometimes if it announce, if it amounts to enough gravity where I think it's going to be hurtful or he think or the other person think it's going to be hurtful I'll issue something you know by email or something and say I said this I didn't mean to say this I meant to say this right um, I mean that's 90% of what happens but there there are more explicit times I mean I've been in a parish where someone preached that divorce was okay like like not that Divorce was sinful and, and necessary because of hardening of hearts, which is what Jesus says, right? But they were just like, yeah, it's okay. You can get married and divorced as much as you want. Uh, no, that's a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. It's spiritual accountability. Spiritual accountability. So what it's doing is it's the, it's, the, it's the constructive way in the church for someone in authority to react, right? What, what's going on there is the laity is not asserting spiritual authority. The laity is appealing to Scripture and then appealing to a person who is above the person in spiritual authority. Because ultimately, I could say, no, you're all wet. I think you're wrong. And then at what point, then, then what, what, what are you to do? You're to go to the bishop who's above me, right? Unless you actually are wrong. And if you do go to the bishop and you're, you are wrong, guess what the bishop will say? You're wrong. <laughs> Unless he's also wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and the, the, the senior warden, actually, I shouldn't have skipped that. You know, the senior warden is actually the, the, laity's, uh, the laity's mouthpiece to the bishop and, and to the, the rector. So the, both wardens, as a matter of fact, have this, have this particular function of, of talking with the rector. Um, but what I want to be very clear to say is that if... If the wardens think that you're not right, they can't block you from going to the bishop. Because he's your bishop, just like he's theirs. <laughs> so there, there, there are lines of authority, but there's also dotted lines of authority here. And accountability. Yeah, uh, Sarah.
Right. So, so the question is, is that different because it's invoking scriptural authority? And the answer is yes, and yet you still need an authority, authoritative person in a role that interprets scripture, right? So like you as a single lay person do not have the right to challenge the rector on his interpretation of scripture. I mean, you can do it. And I might listen to you. I might say, I might think about it again and be like, yeah, you're right. I mean, I've done that in the past. That's happened, right? But, um, but technically speaking, like, it's not a, there's not parody there. There's not parody there. I can't think of any, I can't think of any examples that would help clarify that. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, is it like a judge in a courtroom? I don't know. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, just just as you have the responsibility to correct your brother or your sister, like a lot of people take the Bible's "judge not, lest you be judged," as I can't make judgments about other people's actions and words. That's not right. Scripture tells us to make judgments about people's actions and words. Now, how we go about it is another thing, right? So, yeah, I mean, um, I've, had, I've had people question things said in small groups before, right? And they come to me and they're like, you know, what do you think about this? And, and that's, that's, that's good. Like, that's what they should be doing. And I can say, well, let me dig into it, right? Yeah. You're right. I mean, don't look at it as a, as a thing of power alone. It's also a thing of a tremendous responsibility. Like, I am going to have to stand before the Lord and give an answer for how I govern and how I preach. I know that. Scripture says that teachers and preachers are judged more severely. Um, I take it very seriously. No. Yes? Yes. Yeah, the, the liturgy itself in the Nicene Creed is to, ho- is to help guard the integrity of the faith. Um, so uh, just for the sake of the camera, uh, the, the, the comment was the Nicene Creed occurs either directly before or directly after the sermon so that the laity can judge, it, judge the sermon in line with the creed because the creed stands above the rector authoritatively, right? So um, that's the reason for that. So there's all these dotted lines that are going on, right? I understand it's not a strict hierarchy, but there is a hierarchy, okay? There is a hierarchy, but it's not, it's not an unaccountable hierarchy. That's part of the point. Yeah, Billy.
Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. What's what's the flaw in this system? Why do we see? Well, I think that's a really that's a longer conversation to have. I in my in my estimation, I think it's because too often the laity are ignorant and lazy. Um, and I'll tell you what what I mean by that is that the laity are biblically ignorant. So they don't know. They, they they like smell something wrong. They're like, hmm, what he said that 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 doesn't seem right. But they don't know, like, where to find it in the scriptures, right? Or number two, uh, and this is mostly what I've seen. Sadly, they just they don't care. They don't care. They don't they they don't care enough to take time out of their day to write a letter, or to take time out of their day to make a phone call, or you know, to confront the problem. Um, but that being said, let's not be too hard on the laity. The other systemic problem, I would say, is that um, the seminaries have failed in teaching the clergy and the bishops have failed in... I mean, England's another... England's a whole... Let's, let's chop England off because it's a whole other system where you've got political considerations too. Um, but certainly in the Episcopal Church, um, you, you, you had such poor, poorly educated people on all levels that the system was bound to fall apart. Because here's the, here's, the, here's the secret. If you disciple your people well, you can have a worse system and a more functional church. Right? It's, it's, the, old political, it's the old political thing where... Like, you can have an absolute monarch, you can have a democracy. Both can be tyrants. It depends on the constitution, little c, of your people in the democracy's case, or your monarch. <laughs> right? So it does come down to that. It comes down to discipleship. Systems are only so good as the people in them. <laughs> So, I mean, why are we doing this today? Because of this. Like, like I want you to see that you have a part to play in this, right? Um, and lest you think this is all about the clergy and the rector, let's go on. So, temporal authority. What is temporal authority? Well, temporal authority comes down to the good order and practice of the parish church. Property upkeep, accountability and finance, good record keeping, Responsible use of funds. So these are the areas where the laity are directly entrusted with authority. Okay? What does that look like practically? Um, making sure there's policies. Making sure there's good job descriptions for the staff. Making sure there's budgets and forecasts. Making sure there's accountability and a smooth process in taking collections, right? Making sure the annual meeting has the necessary reports so there's accountability for, um, to the congregation, right? All of that is part of the temporal authority. So the laity, you know, do the lion's share of um, the work in a church. That's how it's supposed to be. So... 
for example, in the early church, it was the laity who even hosted the church, right? In big houses. Later on, uh, they used Roman civil basilicas. Those became the first cathedrals once Christianity was legalized. And uh, there was always a tension between the laity and the clergy, right? There's lots of history on this between the emperors, the kings, the nobility, um, first off, and then later off the rest of the people. After the Reformation in England, canon law and civil law continued to work together. For example, in 1601 and into the 20th century, vestries were in charge of the poor. Did you know that? Up until the 20th century in England, the vestry was in charge of the poor in the county. So vestries came together and they actually distributed a fifth of the nation's resources. A fifth of the money that Parliament spent was, was meted out by vest, local vestries to care for the poor because that was part of the church's job. So the British Parliament worked in concert with the church. Now eventually this got impractical because people urbanized and you didn't have enough um, vestries to, <laughs> to adequately care for people. But the idea was that the vestry of the church knew who the poor were, who the deserving poor were, who the undeserving poor were, better than the, than the federal government, the, the crown. The British system of vestries and wardens came to America under that system. Okay, so this is where we, we come into the picture. And that system was held up as the way here in the United States and even in states, even after the War for Independence. Rights and responsibilities were codified in canon law, however, here in the United States, because very quickly the local governments took over the, the more secular things, parts of, of rule. And so the vestry's temporal authority was limited to the church. As Reverend Canon Phil Ashey explains, canon law is not an end in itself, but a means to an end, helping the church serve its ultimate purposes, biblical, missiological, and theological. And those include, but aren't limited to, aiding the church in the achievement of its goals, providing good and godly order, protecting rights, and providing remedies, what we, what we just talked about, providing avenues of redress for, for problems and recourse and conflicts. And number four, educating the church in biblical theological values and norms. So the ACNA canons also include the responsibilities of the, and the duties of the laity, that is the non-clergy. Look at section, I believe you have this, section one, or title one, section 10 in the canons. Some of this might sound familiar for those of you that have gone through parish um, uh, new member class. So page 10, maybe the second page 10, I don't know. <laughs> so the first page 10. So title 1, canon 10, page 10, but section 2. So note section one first. The people of God are the chief agents of the mission of the church. There's a reason that we don't call clergy ministers. Do you know why? 
Because the laity are the ministers of the gospel, not the priests. Hopefully the priests are being good witnesses <laughs> themselves in their own lives, but they're not the chief ministers of the gospel. So uh, if you read the rest of that, section one, it says, The effective ministry of the church is the responsibility of the laity, no less than it is the responsibility of bishops and clergies. It's incumbent for every lay member of the church to become an effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who's spiritually qualified, gifted, called, and mature in the faith. Each diocese may establish standards for the ministry of the laity. However, on the provincial level, section two outlines them. So here are the duties of the laity. Number one, to worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit every Lord's Day in a church unless reasonably prevented. Number two, to engage regularly in reading and study of Holy Scriptures and the doctrine of the church as found in Article I of the Constitution. Number three, to pray regularly for their needs and those of others, for the church and its mission, and for the concerns of the world. Number four, to observe their baptismal vows, to lead an upright and sober life and to not give scandal to the church. Number five, to present their children and those they've led to the Lord for baptism and confirmation. Number six, to give regular financial support to the church with the biblical tithe as the minimum standard of giving. Number seven, to practice forgiveness daily according to the Lord's teaching. Number eight, to receive worthily the sacrament of Holy Communion as often as reasonable. Number nine, to observe the feasts and fasts of the church as set forth in the Anglican formularies. Number ten, to affirm and follow the biblical standards of sexual morality and ethics in Canon 2.8. Eleven, to continue their instruction in the faith so as to remain an effective minister for the Lord Jesus. Number twelve, to serve their neighbor sacrificially, demonstrating the love of Christ to the poor, the sick, and those in need. Number thirteen, to devote themselves to the ministry of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel among those who do not know him, utilizing the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives them for the effective extension of Christ's kingdom. Did you know you signed up for that? <laughs> it's in the canons. It's also elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so, out of that, you know, and that's the chief ministry of the laity, there also comes the necessity of playing a role in governance. And that's where the vestry comes in. That's where committees come in, right? That's where lay ministries come in. So, those who are baptized and confirmed can be committee chairmen. The head of ministries serve on vestry are eligible to serve in lay, as lay catechists, subdeacons, lay readers, and other lay orders, and to represent the parish as delegates to synod. Um, at the diocesan level, there's also this division of temporal and um, spiritual between the bishop and synod. So this goes all the way up the food chain. Uh, vestry. So the vestry is the elected board which represents the laity. I read that canon. Um, from their ranks, the vestry organizes itself into electing a junior or people's warden and other officers. Some officers are not required to be on the vestry but serve at their pleasure. We have an example of that in Austin. Austin is our treasurer, but Austin is not on vestry but Vestry has appointed him an officer of the church, right? The rector appoints, actually technically 
yeah, I guess Vestry and I do that. The rector appoints the senior or the vicar, or sorry, the senior or the rector's warden. Vestry may appoint, sorry, the senior or the rector's warden. In our parish, um, the rector appoints that warden. So uh, that can vary. That's one of those things given that we have in our bylaws. The wardens serve as a kind of executive committee which the rector can call upon when necessary. I did that during COVID when we couldn't meet as a mission council. The rector is also part of the vestry, as I said earlier, and it's chairman. The vestry is not a board of elders. Full stop. I think this is one of the things that people run into the most when they become Anglican, is they think of the vestry as the board of elders. In Anglican polity, the priest is the elder, or the priests are the elders. So it's a different form of governance than like Presbyterians or Lutherans. So the vestry is not a board of elders. Its authority extends to the issues of property, finance, and ensuring good structure, policy, and order. Specific responsibilities of the vestry in addition to the duties of the laity are laid out in the Anglican Diocese of the Great Lakes canons. Um, I'll have you turn to those very quickly here and then we can take some questions. So look with me at the diocesan canons, which are the smaller, let's see, I think it's slightly smaller print. So turn past. Uh, they're not, okay, this is helpful <laughs> in some ways, but not, um, they're not paginated. So <laughs> you'll, come to, you'll come to page 19 in the provincial canons and then the rest don't have page numbers. So those are the diocesan canons. Um, look with me specifically here at Title II, Canon 19.8. So um, it's the, the facing page says Canon 20 at the top of it, the page after it. Do you see at the bottom of the, the previous page, Canon 19, Section 8? Do you see that? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. Do you see that list? Okay, good. I'm on the uh, Diocesan Canons Committee, and one of the things I'll bring up when we f uh, finalize these is that we need page numbers. Uh, so <laughs> All right, so it says the Vestry or Mission Council shall have the following duties. Provide adequate support for the rector and his or her family and other staff, including pension, insurance, business expenses. Do I need to read through all these? You guys can read. As you read them, however, do you see how this fits in the temporal authority category? So insurance giving, providing oversight, providing money, supporting the rector in all aspects of his or her ministry.
Okay. So that, those are the duties of the vestry as outlined. The vestry also um, can, can appoint with the rector committees. Okay, so we have here committees of vestry and other committees, right? Committees for like benevolence and committees. So vestry has committees that are particular to it, like finance committee or like, um, trying to think of another one, like a building and grounds committee or like a capital improvements, you know, campaign committee, like if you want to build a church, right? All that falls under the vestry. Why? Because that's the temporal authority, right? So in Anglicanism, the church property, the church is exclusively the congregation's purview. The rector has say in it, because he's part of the vestry, but ultimately the responsibility resides in the vestry for that kind of stuff, right? So technically, here's a, here's a fun one for you. Technically, Leah, Bridget, and Patrick are members of St. Anselm. I am not a member of St. Anselm. Father Joshua is not a member of St. Anselm. We are members of the Anglican Diocese of the Great Lakes, and we are residing with you, alongside of you, leading you, but we are not members here. However, our families are. Why would that be? Because of that clergy laity role. So, like, I don't vote in annual meetings, for example. Right? Father Joshua doesn't vote on the vestry. <laughs> I do by, by right of being that rector. But. So, why does that matter? Well, hopefully you can see understanding this stuff really helps us not step on each other's toes, right? Now, there are areas where temporal and spiritual kind of get murky, right? Um, and in those areas, the wardens and the rector have to work together and kind of adjudicate sometimes <laughs> what's going on there. So, But this division is intentional because the church is yours, right? The, the, the church is the laity's. Like, this is your money, that goes into this effort, right? If this were our building, it would be your money that bought the pews, your money that paid for the carpet, right? That's the temporal authority. Questions? Thoughts? Yes, Holly. Well, so, so elders actually, like in the Presbyterian model, for example, um, it kind of works like a vestry without a rector. So like you have a preaching elder and a ruling elder who's in common parlance, the, the pastor, right? But the spiritual authority in those churches lies in the board of elders, not with the pastor, 
right? Like it's board driven. Yeah. Uh, the Lutheran church here is, is, is that way to some degree where like Pastor Wallace is part of a board of elders. Um, but he has to go to the elders to, to vote, for example. I think when they combined services, he had to go to them for a vote. Whereas like I didn't have to go to the vestry for a vote to have two services during COVID. Now I talked to them about it. Right, but yeah. Yes. So this is actually, this is part of the legacy of the Reformation, right? Where at the Reformation, the church owned everything, right? Like the church, like the bishop, like the bishop of Rome, right? Um, so like, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church to this day, there is no vestry. There's a parish council, but they're purely advisory. Like the priest can say, meh. I don't care about that. I'm going to build a new wing onto the church and take the funds and do it. Now that's dumb. <laughs> like a priest shouldn't do that. But there's actually no, there's no check on his power on that. And it's owned by the diocese too. Right? So ultimately a bishop can close a parish um, in the Roman Catholic model like they did with St. James before it was reopened. Um, that can't happen. A bishop, a bishop can close a parish in our model, but basically you have to run out of money. Or you have to be so heretical that he pulls his clergy from you and says, you're no longer Anglican. And you, I, won't, I just won't give you priests. So it's, there's a different system there. So the idea was that, that the people had more authority over their own um, their own congregation. And that also fits our theology where it, it, the, the parish is the chief agent of the church. The parish, the, so, so it's an inverted, for example, I mean, the best way to do it is to contrast it with Rome or orthodoxy. For Roman orthodoxy, the parish exists for the sake of the diocese. In Anglicanism, the diocese exists for the sake of the parish. Like the diocese is supposed to support the parish. Now that's painting with a broad brush. I understand that. I hope you understand that too. But, but sometimes that contrast is, is the easiest way to put it. Does that make sense, Austin? Okay. Yes. Yes. Well, there's an expectation in our polity of the tithe, from the individual to the congregation, from the congregation to the diocese, and from the diocese to the province. Um, and technically, in this parish, it hasn't been this way because we're new. But technically, the vestry is, is to ensure that that's going on. We're working towards that with the Finance Committee and the Budgeting Committee. But technically, in the past, I've run that. 
Right. Right. So, for example, it should usually be, you know, I mean, that the priest preaches on giving, right? His proper place is to preach. But when we come to stewardship campaigns, it's the senior warden, the junior warden, or the treasurer's duty to talk about the money. Honestly, it, the best, you know, the best rule of thumb for clergy is to never touch money. I mean, and that's what our system is set up for. I should never be touching the, offertory, the offering. And, and that's, I think, really smart. <laughs> I, think, I think those of you that have probably seen abuses of that in your own churches or elsewhere know that, right? We had someone, uh, you know, the abuse goes the other way too. And we had someone in this diocese embezzle $40,000 as a crooked treasurer in the church. Um, and the church had insurance for that, for some part of it. But, you know, it's the, it's the vestry's responsibility, for example, to make sure that Lauren is bonded so that if she runs off with the collection... <laughs> We're actually having this discussion in vestry right now. Lauren is bonded, by the way. I, insured, I saw to that. Um, but I think... You know, we're having that discussion in vestry now, how counting is done. Now that, now that COVID is over, there should always be two people looking at the incoming checks, looking at the books, right? So that, so, so it, it sorry, Caleb, I'm, I'm wandering. Um, it, it's originally, it, yeah, I mean, it's under the fiduciary responsibility of vestry, but so is the giving program because of that. It's an outgrowth of that, so... So we're currently working to get up to 10% giving to the diocese because we're not there. But, you know, again, that's part, that relies on your people giving 10% to the church. So our people are very generous. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, we also have to be able to take care of our priests, right, and, and our other expenses. So, yeah. So it's, all, it's a balancing act, right? You know, sometimes there's not enough money. We want to pay the organist, too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, I mean, we've been working, honestly, uh, I don't know if Terry knows this, but I think he does. We've been working to, you know, bring, bring a decent package to, to the organist for, for some time now. I know Carol can testify to that, right? We started off with a volunteer organist in my wife and have um, worked up to, I don't know, hopefully a respectable salary. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, but all of those things are the vestries job, right? So it's not just like providing the money. It's like, okay, we got to set a plan so that we get there someday. Yeah. Other questions? So um, let me just point out one other thing. So the vestry actually um, appoints delegates to synod. So I talked briefly about the next level up. I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, because I think we're probably at the end of our time here. Um, I'm getting hungry, at least. But um, the, the vestry, right, 
selects a delegation to go to synod, which is kind of like the annual meeting of the diocese. Okay, so you're all represented by a delegation of laity and clergy at the synod level, right? Um, and that's really important too. Again, in contrast to, for example, Roman Catholicism, the Anglican bishop exists in accountability to the standing committee and to synod. Like he doesn't, like he's the spiritual authority, but he has to, uh, he doesn't run things entirely. Like he, he doesn't have say over the funds. Standing committee has say over the funds. So this, this system goes all the way up to the provincial level. Um, which again, I don't want to talk about because there's a lot of intricacies, but the system of governance of legislation and the system of courts goes all the way up to the provincial level uh, with the archbishop at, top, at the top and the executive committee and the ecclesiastical provincial courts. So for example, with the diocese of the Midwest, that might work its way to the provincial level of courts. Yes. I mean, it's hard to say when it started, Billy, because parts of it started back at, you know, the, the first councils, like the Council of Chalcedon and stuff. I mean, uh, canon law is conservative in, in, in the literal sense of the word. It's all about conserving and it making minor adjustments so that the institution functions more efficiently. Um, so there's also some different intricacies, like, like the Church of Nigeria has some different canons. Um, they have some different ways of governance um, than we do. So there is some variation, but all of us adhere to the principle. There's a book, it's called The Principles of Canon Law, which actually is the kind of culmination of hundreds, thousands of years of canon law. Um, and like where we diverge from Rome is where Anglicans have amended and changed their canon law. Um, I mean, I think it's safe to say it's been this way you know, certainly in the United States since the beginning, um, going back to the Reformation in Britain. Now, Britain's a little different because there's an established church, so that's a little different too. But, um, yeah, it's, it's stable. And when I talk to people that are coming out of evangelical churches, this is a big attraction for them. <laughs> I know uh, Ryan Hams talked to me about that. Father Joshua has a good saying that he learned in Nigeria, and it is that the, the church of Nigeria is bigger than any one man. The church of Nigeria is bigger than any one man. And that's, that's true, you know, with us too. The, the, the canon law is bigger than any one man so that no one can run roughshod over anybody else. It's a check and balance. It's interesting... Um, I won't talk much about this, but if you actually go back, the British system and the American system of civil law comes out of canon law. Canon law pr was, was the first limited government, going back to the Middle Ages.
which is actually really fascinating for a political science geek like me, but I won't bore you with it. So you got a little taste of my boring you with it with the, uh, the vestries and the poor laws. So I just want to wrap this up by saying that, you know, all of us, to some degree, struggle with honor and obedience, right? It's really hard for us to, to look at honor and obedience through a constructive lens, but honor and obedience is actually an outgrowth of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. The church has traditionally interpreted that to mean that you're to honor those in authority, right? That doesn't mean that you have to agree with them and everything. It doesn't mean that you always just, you know, salute and do what they say. But it does mean that um, when we talk about authority, we should be gentle and we should be um, obedient and not grumbly and not complaining, <laughs> right? So uh, question 304 from our catechism reads this way, how else do you love God in light of the fifth commandment? I also keep the fifth commandment by showing respect for teachers and elders, by obeying as far as is lawful those who hold authority in the church, my employment, and civil government, and by conducting myself in all things with reverent humility before God and my neighbor. Then there's a bunch of um, a bunch of scriptural citations to that if you want to look them up in your catechism. But you know, and I won't start preaching. I promise. The fifth commandment is the only commandment with a, with a promise attached to it, right? St. Paul makes this point. I think it's Philippians where he says, honoring thy father and mother that it might go well with you. That it might go well with you. And so when we do understand authority and honor it, it goes well with us. When we come to the table trying to assert our rights, it does not go well with us. We have rights and responsibilities to one another. So let us be of gentle heart and meek when we're dealing with this. And where there's hurt, let's heal it. Let's let God heal it. All right? Any final questions? I hope this is helpful. Take, take, these, uh, take these canons with you, read through them. There's more. You can read the whole thing on the ACNA website if you want. Um, it's under the governance tab. But let's uh, work for the sake of the gospel together. Because actually when this stuff goes well, it goes really well. Like, it, it, you don't have priests that burn out. <laughs> you don't have vestries that are, you know, in turmoil all the time. <laughs> Right? When it goes badly, it goes badly. But there's a way out, at least. So, all right. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you have indeed, as your word says, knit us together as members of the body of Christ. We ask, Lord, that we would seek to be virtuous people, that we would seek to honor you first and honor one another as the body of Christ. And, Lord, um, we ask that we would honor our leaders, and truly take to heart that fifth commandment. Lord, help us to have eyes to see, and help us to have meek and gentle hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.